You can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, I invite you to grab one uh, under a seat nearby. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that. Uh, we have that there for you, so take that with you as you go, and let that be your own uh, Bible from here on out. And so this morning, we are in Mark chapter 6. So if you're using one of those Bibles near a seat uh, nearby you, that's on page 842 in those uh, Bibles. And let's uh, pray together. Our Father, we come to you and we're looking for you to do the work that you alone can do and that you love to do, which is reveal yourself and your glory in Christ by your Spirit's power through your Scriptures. And so we pray that you would be active among us, that this wouldn't be um, a passive moment for us, but that you by your Spirit would engage us and engage our minds and our hearts and our wills so that we would behold your glory in Jesus, that we would admire the Lord Jesus, and that you would transform us into his image. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, the primary question in the first half of the Gospel of Mark that Mark is addressing is this, who is Jesus? It's a question of his identity. Um, you'll, you'll actually notice in the first eight chapters, uh, early the fir- all the way until the end of the eighth chapter, Jesus' death is very uh, only elusively referenced. Um, it doesn't become explicit until the second half of the gospel, and then it becomes the focus of what he came to do, which is to die for our sins. So the first half of the gospel is asking and answering the question, who is Jesus? And it's the question that we still need to ask today, and there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, many people today do not know who the real Jesus is. So they have a version of Jesus in their minds when they think of him, and they think they have um, an idea of who he is that they've picked up from various people or places. It's either maybe a religious Jesus or a moralistic Jesus, or it's a quaint Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. And so I've said this over and over uh, through the years, and uh, so I say it often uh, because it's important. The Jesus that many people are rejecting today is not the real Jesus. It's a Jesus that they have in their minds that they've picked up from something, but it's not the real Jesus they're rejecting. And they're rejecting an idea of Him. But the real Jesus might actually surprise them. And so I've seen this many times when people actually start to read the Bible for themselves or the gospel of Mark, they're shocked to see the real Jesus and to see that he wasn't like what they expected him to be. And he's at the one and the same time, they see that he's more powerful than they thought and more gentle than they thought. He has more authority than they thought, and he's more humble than they thought, and he is compelling. I've seen time and again that Before someone is even convinced that it's all true, when they get exposed to the real Jesus, they wish it was. And then the good news is that this is actually historical and not myth. Jesus rose from the dead in space and time history. The Jesus that we wish was true is true. 
So we have an opportunity in our culture right now to rediscover the real Jesus, both for ourselves and also for the sake of those whom we know and love. And Mark is addressing this question for us over and over and over, and it's the question that our culture needs an answer to and our neighbors need an answer to, which is, who is he really? And our text this morning gives a surprising answer. Here's a second reason why we need to keep asking and answering this question, who's the real Jesus? Because if Jesus really is who he said he is, then this gives us great hope in hard times, which we all go through. Some of you feel it right now. Because over and over, we see Jesus coming to people in their stress and in their distress. He brings hope, he brings help, he brings healing, and he's the same Jesus today that we see on the pages of Scripture. When we see his authority and his compassion, that Jesus we see on the pages of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark is still the same Jesus, now risen and exalted, who sent his Spirit to be with us. So he's still engaged in our lives, and so we want to know this real Jesus now. So the story we're going to read is fairly well known. Jesus walks on water. And the story is here to show us who the real Jesus is and what it looks like to trust him. We trust him because he is the one true God who is with us and for us. So let's read this story together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. The crowd is there from the mass feeding that happened with Jesus multiplying five loaves to feed 5,000 men plus many others. And after he dismissed the crowds and sent the disciples away, after he had taken leave of them, verse 46, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, so sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But he immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Well, what is this story about? Well, I reminded us last Sunday about a reading strategy that it's helpful to have when approaching the Gospel of Mark, and it'll help us get the point of this story today as well. So we can read the Gospel of Mark at two levels, we saw. The first level is reading at the surface level. So we can read through the whole Gospel of Mark fairly quickly and get the overall message. And we can read this story and grasp the overall message that Jesus did this amazing miracle and sense that this is saying something about Him being divine. He is God in the flesh here. But there's a deeper second level at which you can, we can read Mark. And with this deeper reading, we recognize that Mark is very careful with 
the way that he writes these stories, and he keeps constantly drawing attention in story after story to the Old Testament scriptures and how they're coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And so as we read the Gospel of Mark, in story after story, it helps to have three things in mind. The Old Testament, other stories in the Gospel of Mark, and the particular details that Mark gives in his stories. And these three work together. So, for instance, sometimes you'll read through the Gospel of Mark and read a story, and you'll notice a very strange or peculiar detail, and it might seem just obscure. And very often, the way to figure out what that seemingly odd detail is doing there um, is to look for an Old Testament connection, because Mark is constantly drawing attention to the Old Testament. And sometimes that helps us even understand what the strange details are in Mark's uh, stories. Or sometimes you'll notice that there's an Old Testament story being pulled on here or Scripture or promise being alluded to here, and it helps you see details you miss. So we saw that last week if you were here, that we noticed that Jesus is alluding to this idea in the Old Testament of God as a divine shepherd coming to shepherd his people and him appointing a uh, king in David's line as a shepherd. And The people are like sheep without a shepherd. So this image pulled on the Old Testament of God's people being like sheep and Jesus coming as a divine shepherd, seeing that context helps you then notice other details that might have seemed somewhat strange in the text, like Jesus had them sit down or recline on the green grass. Like, you know, why why mention the green grass? Well, it's part of this imagery of God's people like sheep with a shepherd who's come. So same thing with this um, story today. It's actually this is just good general Bible reading strategy. When you're reading text, pay attention to the details. Read that text in context of the whole book in which it's in, and then, of course, the whole Bible and the story of grace unfolding. So, I'm saying this not because we're going to go into some in-depth Bible study uh, here, but because this is how Mark wants us to read him and understand what he's saying. He doesn't want us to merely superficially read this and grasp the big idea, though we can do that but to linger and slow down and understand the significance of Jesus as Jesus has come in this long story of God's plan of redemption or salvation. So if we just skim through the writing of the Gospel of Mark, we'll have a fairly superficial idea of who Jesus is, but we want to know the real Jesus. And so Mark invites us to engage with him here. And so as we do this, we'll see that this story is about two key ideas Uh, We can summarize them with the words revelation and response. It's actually the the rhythm of worship in general. God reveals himself, and we respond. And we see this pattern here, revelation and response as well. And so in particular, this story leads us to see the real Jesus as the one true God, and then to respond with trust that he is who he said he is, and he'll help us in suffering. So let's walk through this section in those two steps. Uh, revealing the real Jesus and responding in faith. Okay, so first, revealing the real Jesus. Now, if we quickly read this story, uh, we may think that it's mainly a rescue story. The disciples are distressed. They're in the middle of the night making slow headway, painfully rowing against the wind, and Jesus walks on water to them, gets in the boat, wind stops, they're rescued. But that's actually not where the main drama of this story is. The drama is not in the calming of the storm. The drama is in the disciples' experience of seeing and hearing Jesus out there in that moment. Jesus is doing more than rescuing them. He's revealing himself 
to them. So this story is continuing the one that came right before it, which was Jesus revealing himself as the divine shepherd of his people who cares for them. He's just now fed the crowd of 5,000. Now he's, it's getting late. He sends his disciples away. It seems like he's up to something, uh, sending the disciples away as he does. Look at verse 45. Immediately he made, that's actually forceful language here, he made, he compelled his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Um, so this strong language, he's compelling his disciples to get in the boat and go without him. And then Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. It seems like he's up to something. It often seems like that, actually. And so as the story unfolds, we get the sense that this story actually will unfold according to his plan. He is up to something. So the disciples head out of the sea. Jesus dismisses the crowds, goes away to pray. And then in the middle of the night, the disciples are in a bit of trouble. So verse 48 says that Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So I wonder what the disciples were feeling at this point. Um, They just came back from their own ministry and mission that Jesus sent them out on. They had returned to him. We see this in verse 30. And then Jesus was going to, the previous day, was going to take the disciples away for rest. And then they go away for rest, and then all these crowds of thousands swarm, and then their plans change. Jesus is flexible and adjusts, feeds them, busy day, and then it's getting late, and then he sends the disciples off on their own, and now it's between 3 and 6 a.m., and they're still out there in the wind making painful headway. Um, Probably fairly exhausted from this time, and now Jesus acts. There's four key moments here that reveal who Jesus is. First moment, he walks out to them on the sea. That's verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, so between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. So the disciples are exhausted, and then they see Jesus coming to them walking on water. Now, after the enlightenment A lot of scholars tried to find some kind of rationalized explanation for this. Some say he was walking on a sandbar. Some say that he was walking on the shore and there was a mist, and so they thought it looked like he was walking on the water. Um, I just think the disciples weren't idiots. So Mark's clearly presenting this as a miraculous water-walking moment. So Jesus is doing, and Mark wants us to see, that Jesus is doing something that God alone can do. And it's likely that Mark is actually drawing attention to uh, something from the book of Job. The, the language here is parallel. So in Job chapter 9, Job is poetically describing the difference between God and his creation. The things God alone can do versus what humanity can do. And he notes that God's, he notes God's strength, his wisdom, his power. God shakes the mountains. God fills the sky with beauty. And Job says... God alone treads on the waves of the sea. And Mark uses the same language here that's used in that verse from Job 9, 8. And the point is that Jesus is doing what God alone can do. Jesus is revealing himself to them as the one true God here. So that's the first moment of revelation. The second moment happens next. It's an interesting moment here. Jesus wanted to pass by them. Look at verse 48 again. Next thing Mark says is that Jesus meant to pass by them. What is that about? Now, he's coming to help them. 
So it seems odd to think that he would want to pass them by. Uh, very peculiar. And so remember this reading strategy with Mark. If you notice a strange detail, think. Is there anything in the Old Testament that can help me understand why Mark is noting something that seems kind of peculiar here? And it turns out that this little phrase, passed by, is filled with significance in the Old Testament. In fact, the exact language is used three times in one of the most significant moments in the whole Old Testament and therefore in human history. Turn to Exodus 33 with me. So, second book of the Bible, so go to the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, and chapter 33. Now, the book of Exodus is the story of God rescuing Israel from their slavery in Egypt. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brings them to Himself in the mountain at Mount Sinai, uh, gives them the Ten Commandments and other commands, enters into this covenant relationship with them, and then there's a, a point later where Moses is speaking with God, and an incredible moment happens, and it becomes this high point of the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Moses asked God if he could see his glory, and God responded by saying that he will pass by him and reveal his glory. So look at Exodus 33, verses 19 to 22. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So the, the language there is pass by, same language Mark uses here, pass by before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be, here's his glory and his goodness, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God says that he will show Moses his glory, but he'll reveal himself to him, yet as he does this, Moses can't get a full glimpse. So this is um, langu human language being used to describe God. The point is that God will proclaim his character, proclaim his glory, the greatness of who he is, his weightiness, who he is, to Moses. He'll reveal his true self to him, but Moses is a sinful human, so he can only get a glimpse. And then it happens. So look ahead to the next chapter in chapter 34, verse 6. And this verse is the high point of God's revelation in the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with this verse, underline it, memorize it, and you'll see it all the time in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the prophets. This is how the Old Testament people of God understood who their God was. And the Gospel of John says this is fulfilled in Jesus, full of grace and truth. Okay, so Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, Yahweh, passed before, right, passed by, same language, passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that language there, passed before it's the same as what Mark uses for Jesus in passing by the disciples. So the, 
Old Testament was written in Hebrew, it was translated into Greek, and Mark was writing in Greek. He's using the same language. So what's Mark doing? Well, Mark is showing us, I'm convinced, very subtly and carefully, that Jesus is creating a moment of revelation for his disciples. He's revealing himself to them as he keeps doing. The question is, who is the real Jesus? And Jesus, story after story, day after day, week after week, is revealing himself to his disciples, showing them his glory. That's the second key moment of revelation. He walks on water, and he's going to pass by them. And then third, listen to what he says. The disciples cry out in fear. They think they're seeing a ghost or something. And Jesus responds with language, once again, charged with significance from the Old Testament. Look at verse 50. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, Mark originally wrote this in Greek, so we're looking at a translation here, and sometimes it's helpful to know what the Greek is, especially if there's a connection to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And sometimes your translations will have a little footnote that tells you what it is if it's significant. It doesn't do that here. I wish it did. The Greek phrase here for it is I is ego eimi, which is translated I am. Now think back to Exodus with me. When God revealed himself first to Moses in the burning bush, uh, when he was going to call Moses to rescue Israel, Moses said, okay, if I go to Israel and say, hey, let's all just leave, <laughs> let's, just, let's get out of here, who do I say sent me? And God reveals his name to Moses, and he says this in Exodus 3.14, another massively significant moment in the Old Testament. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Um, the Greek translation of that first use of I am there is ego eimi. God is saying, here's my identity, ego eimi. I am. That's who's sending you. It's related to the way that God refers to himself throughout the Old Testament and later as well, in the text we saw a few moments ago with the name Yahweh. It's the name that God proclaimed to Moses when he passed by him. And then in the book of Isaiah, God repeatedly refers to himself, especially in a cluster of texts in Isaiah uh, 41 through 43. God keeps referring him to himself as I am in, in the Greek translation, ego eimi, over and over. So here's one example. Isaiah 41, 4, he says, I, the Lord, right? I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am. It's a way of referring to him being the one true God who is for his people. He and he alone is God. He and he alone is the I am. And in Isaiah, where God repeatedly refers to himself as I am over and over, he also repeats another phrase. He says, do not be afraid. So, for example, in Isaiah 41.10, just a few verses later, he says to Israel, fear not, literally, do not be afraid, same language Mark uses, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, here in Mark, Jesus, in this moment of incredible divine revelation, says what God repeatedly says of himself in Isaiah, I am. Do not be afraid. And then the fourth moment of revelation happens next. He steps in the boat, and the wind stops. 
It doesn't even seem that dramatic. And maybe that's the point. It's effortless. Because if you have the one true God with you, uh, he can go ahead and just step in the boat and the wind stops and the sea is calm. So what's this story about? Well, it's not mainly a rescue story, though that's part of it. This is a revelation story. Jesus, in rescuing them, is revealing himself to them. He's revealing himself as the one true God, the one who calls himself Yahweh, the I Am. So again, you can read through this story and and get the gist of that, right? A kind of a first level of reading. But when you slow down, Mark wants us to see what he's doing here. Um, He's showing us this is Yahweh in the flesh with us and for us. It demonstrates Jesus' divine nature. So I'll keep drawing attention to this in the Gospel of Mark because it's so often missed in the Gospel of Mark in particular. So I mentioned this last week. Some skeptical scholars claim that the idea of Jesus being God was developed over quite a bit of time. They said the Gospel of Mark is an early Christian writing and doesn't really reflect this as Jesus is divine. Say Jesus didn't think of himself as divine. He was just a prophet thinking the end of the world was about to happen. And then later writings like the Gospel of John finally do develop this kind of idea that Jesus is divine. Um, so, and there's a point to that observation because Jesus doesn't just go around in the Gospel of Mark saying, hey, everyone, look at me, I'm God. Um, but there are a lot of claims like that in the Gospel of John, and so the divinity of Jesus is more unmistakable in John's Gospel. So it seems like Mark, you, some would say, is giving us kind of this, humid, this vision of a human Jesus. Well, John gives us this divine Jesus, and then you have the councils in the next few hundred or the next yeah, few hundred years that then describe the divinity of Jesus and the doctrine of the Trinity more clearly. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what do we make of this? Well, it's true that Christians kept clarifying their, their way of articulating just who it is that Jesus is and how they, we should talk about him in a way that's true to the Bible. But here's what we're seeing in Mark. Mark has no less an exalted view of Jesus than the Gospel of John or the later councils. But the way that he tells us who Jesus is, is by showing it. Jesus, mainly in the Gospel of Mark, shows who he is as the one true God, uh, rather than telling us. But it's unmistakable in story after story after story. So here's how one scholar put it, named James Edwards. He said, Mark's Christology, so his teaching about Christ, Mark's Christology is no less sublime than is John's, although John has Jesus declaring that he's the Son of God, whereas Mark has him showing that he's the Son of God. So here's one of the reasons this matters very practically, because it's only if Jesus is who he shows himself to be here that we can have hope. I mean, think about it. Why is Jesus revealing himself to his disciples here? It's to comfort them. It's to show them who he is, and that they need not fear, because the one true God is with them and for them. And so he says, take heart, take courage. I am. You don't need to be afraid. And because this is true, he says the same thing to us in our troubles. Take courage, no matter what you're going through. I am. Do not be afraid. So this leads then to the next movement of the story, which is the response. So how do we respond to this Jesus? Well, first, the disciples respond with a form of amazement. It's not all positive, though. So they're first scared when they see Jesus, but then um, when he reveals himself to them and 
calms the wind. They're shocked, but Mark wants us to see there's something missing in their response. So look at verses 51 to 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the disciples are shocked. It's understandable at one level, right? I mean, Jesus is constantly amazing them. Uh, It is kind of surprising. They hadn't quite seen this before. No one had. Um, But look at the way Mark put it. They are utterly astounded. And then Mark adds this little comment about why this is not a fully healthy response. So why? He says they didn't understand about the loaves. So Mark's drawing a connection here between this story and the one right before it that happened earlier the previous day when the disciples saw Jesus take their five loaves, multiply them, and feed thousands. So now hours later, they're on a boat, they see Jesus, they're utterly astounded. And Mark says that's not necessarily a healthy response. Why? They weren't understanding about the loaves. In other words, they weren't learning and internalizing the lesson they had just seen. And what was that lesson? Well, the point of that feeding is Jesus saying, I am the divine shepherd who will care for you. Uh, And I can do all sorts of things you might not expect me to do, like multiply the loaves and feed thousands of people. And so there's, there's a kind of hardening of heart, Mark is saying, is happening. They're, they're not open to Jesus as much as they should be here. They're not getting him. And so they're not just surprised, they're utterly astounded. So it seems like they're shocked, not just surprised, but shocked because they didn't have a category for this. And Mark is kind of saying, guys, you shouldn't be shocked anymore. You can be surprised. You can say, wow, that was amazing. But this shouldn't blow your mind. You've, you've seen him speak to the storm already and have it get quiet. That was chapter 4. You just saw him feed thousands. So here's a surprising new event that happens. But if your mind and categories are blown, it's because you're not getting the categories he's giving you. Like, he's God. <laughs> here he is. So be in awe, but don't have your mind blown here as if you've never... You know, in other words, you have small thoughts of him, and that's a problem. So here's the lesson for you and me. If you have seen enough from the Lord Jesus on the pages of Scripture and experienced in your life, if you have seen enough to convince you that Jesus is Lord of all, that he's risen from the dead, that he is your Savior, he is your King, he is your friend, and then you can trust him in the hardest of times, and you can know that he'll be for you. I know some of you have. Jesus has proven to be your God and your Savior and your friend, and when hard times have hit, you have clung to him. You have thrown yourself on him, and he has proven himself faithful. Maybe you're doing that right now. Uh, But others of us may say we believe in God, and Jesus is the Lord God, the one true God in the flesh, the risen King. We say we believe that he's with us and for us, but then when hard times happen, we, we doubt him and we don't look to him, and we are utterly fearful. And if he was to do something, we would kind of be surprised because we're not actually expecting it. So that's one way to respond to Jesus, like the disciples, forgetting who he is, therefore having low expectations of him, and therefore being ready to be utterly astounded if he actually did something big. The other response is like the people who come to Jesus later that morning. So Jesus and the disciples bring the boat to the shore. People see them and recognize Jesus, you can look at me, look at with, 
Look at this with me in verse 54. Then they got out of the boat. The people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Now, I feel a little bit bad for the disciples again at this point because they were supposed to have rest the previous day. They're up all night rowing against the wind, and then they pull to the shore, and then right when they pull up, people are like, hey, I recognize, and they start running and gathering people, and it's like, okay, here we go again, right? Um, They're not going to get a break. Uh, But again, Jesus and the disciples adjust because Jesus has compassion, and they bring people to them, and the people, it seems, are responding to Jesus better than the disciples were. They know who he is, and so they eagerly come to Jesus with their problems, and they look for healing, and they get it. Verse 56, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So a couple final implications as we wrap up here. First, if you are exploring Christianity, then the question for you is, who do you think Jesus is? After what you've seen, who do you think that he is? This was the question the disciples were trying to answer. It's the question that Mark is writing this to present an answer for. Um, Mark shows us that they were, the disciples were slow to embrace the answer. And so the question for all of us today is the same. Do you see the real Jesus? Are you open to him being who he showed himself to be in this story? Jesus is revealing himself here. He's showing himself to be the maker and the one true God. He's showing his true identity. He's the one true God who can walk on water, who can still a storm, and who is the I am who calms our fears. And so the disciples, and we have to hold this together and realize that, okay, in light of this story, it means that, and Jesus even just before this was praying, so Jesus is praying to God and is God. How does that work? Well, we have the doctrine of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit added there, right? You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Is he who he said he is? And if you see this, then he invites you to come to him, which is a movement of your heart, a giving of yourself to him, extending your hands with the empty hands of faith and saying, I receive your forgiveness. I'm coming to you and I'll follow you. And he welcomes you And he says, I am, do not be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. Follow me. And second, for Christians, this story invites us to admire Jesus. Do you admire him? do Do you look to him and not just kind of have a theological category? Okay, divine human God did things in the page of Scripture coming again. Do you admire him? Look at him here. He is revealing himself. And he's showing himself to be this God who is, this, this one who is truly God and truly man, who walks to his people in their problems and puts them at ease because he's in control of every circumstance. He says, I am, do not fear. And we see this incredible combination then of power, infinite power, and tenderness, and grace, and patience with the disciples. I mean, I was struck reading this. That comment about the disciples not understanding about the loaves because their hearts were hardened, that wasn't Jesus' rebuke. That was Mark adding that comment. Now, maybe Jesus did rebuke them. He has at other times kind of pressed them and said, are you so slow to understand? But at least here, he's just calming their fears. 
So here, infinite power with tender grace and mercy. Um, this combination. Um, Jonathan Edwards, this pastor from uh, New England in the 1700s, would talk about Jesus' diverse excellencies being brought together. Right? He's the lion and he's the lamb. He's powerful and he's gentle. We have all authority and we have humility. And when those are brought together in one and the same being, in Jesus, it's admirable. There's, there's excellencies here to behold, he would put it in his 1700s way of putting it. So, do you admire Jesus? And then finally, do you trust him in your trials? This is inviting you to do that, even today. He doesn't just say, I am, therefore know that I am. He says, I am, therefore do not fear. So, we look to him in our heartache. We know that he's the risen king, and he's over all things, even in our troubles, and he's with us by his spirit, and he'll come to make all things new. So let's pray to the Father in the name of this Jesus in the Spirit. Our Father, we thank you for your word here. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through Scripture here. And we pray that you would work in our minds and hearts so that we would be convinced with a settled confidence in who the real Jesus is and that we would admire him and admire you as your glory seen in him. We pray that your spirit would continue to work in us even this week to cultivate this posture of admiration and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.